our culture has uh, recently recognised two powerful values which remain, which improve people's lives when they're promoted at work and elsewhere. You've probably heard about these values. In fact, you may even have been trained in them. <clears throat> they are inclusion and diversity. So let me quote from globaldiversitypractices.com first on diversity. Diversity is any dimension that can be used to differentiate groups and people from one another. In a nutshell, it's about empowering people by respecting and appreciating what makes them different in terms of age, gender, ethnicity, religion, disability, sexual orientation, education and national origin. Diversity allows for the exploration of these differences in a safe, positive and nurturing environment. It means understanding one another by surpassing simple tolerance to ensure people truly value their differences. This allows us both to embrace and also to celebrate the rich dimensions of diversity contained within each individual and place positive value on diversity in the community and in the workforce. Tim's found this so boring he has to leave. <laughs> that generally sounds... That, end quote. That's the end of the quote. So that generally sounds good, right? It's not... That's, you know, it's not really an offensive statement. There are a couple of things that Christians might, might uh, find questionable or struggle with, such as the idea that respecting and appreciating someone's religion and sexual orientation is going to empower them in some helpful way. But let's put that to the side for the moment. What about inclusion? Globaldiversitypractices.com says... Inclusion is an organisational effort and practices in which different groups or individuals having different backgrounds are culturally and socially accepted and welcomed. This sort of helps you appreciate sermons, right? Reading this sort of stuff out. These differences could be self-evident, such as national origin, age, race and ethnicity, religion slash belief, gender, marital status and socioeconomic status, or they could be more inherent, such as educational background, training, sector experience, organisational tenure, even personality, such as introverts and extroverts. In inclusive cultures make people feel respected and valued for who they are as an individual or group. People feel a level of supportive energy and commitment from others so that they can do their best at work. Inclusion often means a shift in an organisation's mindset and culture that has visible effects such as participation in meetings, how offices are physically organised or access to particular facilities or information. The process of inclusion engages each individual and makes people feel valued as being essential to the success of the organisation. Evidence shows that when people feel valued they function at full capacity and feel part of the organisation's mission. This culture shift creates higher performing organisations where motivation and morale soar. End quote. This definition as well seems quite reasonable, right? You and I might balk at the, the, the bit at the end there that seems so focused on efficiency and utility, 
but our society's values are strongly influenced by business and money. So, and to be honest, I did quote from a website that's talking to businesses. But if you Google diversity and inclusion, that's pretty much what you find. You're probably wondering where on earth I'm going with this. What does this have to do with evangelism? Or even the church? It actually has a lot to do with the church. Like most Western values, these new values of inclusion and diversity are derived from Christianity. Indeed, it's these two values that have driven the global expansion of Jesus' body, the church. Jesus expressed the value of inclusion constantly. For example, just before the Last Supper, in John's account of Jesus' ministry, we find him expressing this. I will not judge those who hear me but don't obey me, for I have come to save the world and not to judge it. Now, the first part of this verse might be strange, might sound a bit strange to Christian ears, but the second part is very familiar. Jesus came into the world to save people, not to judge them. Now, we'll come back to this verse and its context, which will make a little bit more sense of that first part, in a moment, but for the moment, let's move on. Jesus' final commission for his disciples was also clearly an inclusive command. Remember, it says, Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's no exclusion here. No peoples or individuals that the disciples are banned from inviting into the kingdom. And we see in this command an openness to diversity. Jesus uses the Greek term ethne, translated all the nations. This is the Greek root of the word ethnicity, and it has a very similar meaning to that word. In the Jewish use of the New Testament, there's an extra meaning. The word often refers to the Gentiles. In other words, to all the other ethnicities other than Jews. That's how Jews thought of the world. Jews, everyone else. So Gentiles just means everyone else. The church, therefore, in going to everyone else, is built on a radically cross-cultural diversity. It's built in there right at the very beginning. That diversity is enduring. It doesn't go away. It will be present at the end of time. In John's revelation, his vision of the final entry of the church into their place of rest, the New Jerusalem, says, or his vision of the the New Jerusalem, says, and the city, the New Jerusalem, has no need of sun or moon for the glory of God illuminates it and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of day because there's no night there and all the nations will bring their glory and honour into the city. In this beautiful vision, and I wish I, wish I had a, a picture that really captured this, we see the inclusion and diversity inherent in Christianity. This is, this is 
when everything's been made right, there's still nations that enter into the kingdom and kings of those nations. There's still diversity. Finally, Christianity has perhaps the most powerful appeal for diversity, most powerful argument for diversity or or model of diversity in all of history. It's made by the Apostle Paul in his letter to that very diverse city of Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says, The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit and we all share the same spirit. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. And then Paul goes on to explain, to give examples. So his argument in this passage is that the body of Christ, the church, is like a human body being made of many different parts. And the difference between parts is intentional and necessary. It's actually been designed in by God. So the human body is a model of that and the the body of Christ, the church, is a bigger version of that. This, This beautiful, wonderful image of diversity and unity has served the church well. And I think it's been of great use to our society as well, this, this concept. But this image, this image really emphasises the difference between the Christian conception of inclusiveness and diversity and our society's version. So what is that difference? Let's look at that now. It's really important. The Christian ideas of inclusion and diversity differs from our societies in three ways. First, the Christian idea of being included envisions a much greater sort of inclusion than our societies. Second, the Christian idea of inclusion requires more than mere participation or presence from people. So... Inclusion is more than just being there. And third, the Christian idea of diversity values people for who they are, not for what their differences may contribute. Remember how that definition I read of inclusion talked about respecting and embracing people's differences, right? You might have wondered why I'd only use words like respect, appreciate, value, embrace and celebrate. I mean, these are good words, but they're not really they're not really personal, are they? It doesn't mention caring or loving or serving or or even doing life together, one of Tim's favorite phrases. <laughs> or even being friends. Contrast that with Paul, who sees inclusion interacting with diversity in this way. This is from later on in the passage on the body. 
In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. And the parts we regard as less honourable are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should be seen, while the more honourable parts do not require this, that should not be seen, while the more honourable parts do not require this special care. So God has put the, de- the body together such that an extra honour and care are given to the, those parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honoured, all the parts are glad. Note the language here. Caring, suffering for one, for and with one another, serving, giving to, honor, giving honour to, protecting and so on. If you read the whole passage, I mean, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. What is 1 Corinthians chapter 13 about? Love. And this flows directly into that passage. This is, this is the context of 1 Corinthians 13. So how different is that? How different is this language, this vision of unity and diversity from the one that I read from globaldiversitypractices.com. Christian inclusion is that the difference can be, can be said in one word. Inclusion is family. John explained right at the beginning of his gospel. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become Children of God. Children of God. In other words, a family. God and his children. And this simple sentence also reveals that extra requirement of Christian inclusion over and above mere participation. The need to believe and accept Jesus. Remember, our society's idea of inclusion and diversity is that people can simply come together with an attitude of celebrating each other and everything will be wonderful. Tragically, it would be wonderful if that actually worked. That would be fantastic, but it doesn't. It's a utopian view of reality. Utopia, you may have heard of it, was the name of an island in Sir Thomas More's satirical novel of the same name. And he constructed the name from the Greek words for not and place, indicating that his idealistic island did not and could not exist. And the same is true of our society's utopian ideas of inclusion and diversity. Inclusion and diversity without personal costs. It doesn't exist. It can't. The reason's simple. Our society's idea of diversity places no limits on the type of diversity and that diversity is driven by what? By personal desire. By your own personal vision of who you are. So you get to decide which direction you're going in. When you put two or more human beings together inclusion 
and encourage them to go their own way, diversity, conflict becomes increasingly likely. See, all I've done is move those together and they run into each other. With no greater good to moderate our differences, we have no way to resolve those differences. Simply forcing people together with the mantra that they must accept one another, that they must celebrate one another, doesn't work. It just makes conflict more likely. That's why no prior cultures have ever expressed these two values together. If you look at the history of the world, no other culture has ever had inclusion and diversity as a value because there's no way to resolve these inevitable conflicts. And just in case you think I'm just, you know, drawing some pictures and making stuff up, here's an example of why it doesn't work. This is a news report from Tasmania earlier this month. Quote, Lesbian activist Jessica Hoyle alleges she was ordered to leave the Launceston Target store by a non-binary staff member who called her a TERF, a term for feminists who exclude transgender women. In a complaint lodged with the Equal Opportunity Tasmania, Miss Hoyle said at the time of the incident she was wearing clothing featuring the logo of lesbian, gay, bisexual Tasmania which does not advocate for transgender people. According to Miss Hoyle and witnesses, she was talking to two other shoppers about the need for female-only lesbian events and female rather than gender-neutral toilets. So what we see here are two people, two people who, of all the two people in our society, most people would consider to be perfectly comfortable with each other since they both belong to the popular group of LGBTQ people, right? But in reality, the desires of Miss Hoyle, who's pictured here, there's no picture of the other person because they obviously don't want their picture um, to be shown. Miss Hoyle's desires seem to be at odds with the desires of the non-binary target staff member. One of these, Miss Hoyle, wants biological women to be recognised as women and treated as distinctive, different from biological men. The other, based on their actions, wants this distinction broken down at any cost. And these two desires, which are perfectly legitimate in our society, are in direct conflict. There's no amount of embracing or valuing each other that's going to change this. There's nothing that the uh, Tasmanian equal uh, Equal Opportunity can do to resolve this conflict, which is probably why they initially rejected it. Our society has these values of diversity and inclusion because it inherited them from Christianity, which did make them work together. But our society has abandoned the crucial step which allowed these two values, inclusion and diversity, to work together. And it's well, our society is well on its way to discovering how foolish it was to abandon that. Which brings us finally to that crucial step that makes the inclusion and diversity of Christianity possible. So inclusion and diversity are good values, right? I'm not 
you understand that I'm all for inclusion and diversity. A few moments ago, I quoted John's expression of that step as believing and accepting Jesus. But perhaps the most powerful way that the Bible talks about this step is using the term repentance. In his second sermon, after healing the beggar at the Golden Gate, the Apostle Peter gives a succinct explanation of how Christian inclusion can work. Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Repentance is the act of turning back to God. We've previously turned away from God in rebellion, so we're turning back to him. Everyone, all of us, all people, we're all rebels against God. We're all mired in sin, this attitude of self-centered arrogance, this idea that, that we get to decide what is best for us. So all people, all people are invited to return to God. All people are included in this. There's no exceptions. And repentance doesn't remove diversity. When you become a Christian, when you repent, when you turn back to God, you don't become a clone, you don't become a zombie, you don't become some sort of robot. As Paul expressed it to the Corinthians, God has designed diversity into the human race. Repentance actually allows diversity to lead to harmony rather than to conflict. God is the greater good that allows us to moderate our differences so that only the design differences that work together because they're designed to work together harmoniously remain. And the selfish differences that ultimately cause others harm, even when we think they won't, those differences are peeled away by the word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember that strange verse from John, that I, the, the first part that I sort of said was a bit weird? Let's now look at the context because it will show us what Christian inclusion and diversity look like in action. This is Jesus just before the Last Supper, remember? He gets frustrated with the people who don't believe him and he says, I've come as a light to shine in this dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. I will not judge those who hear me, but don't obey me, for I've come to save the world and not to judge it. But all who reject me and my message will be judged on the day of judgment by the truth I have spoken. I don't speak on my own authority. The Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. And I know his commands lead to eternal life. So I say whatever the Father commands, tells me to say. So you see how Christianity makes inclusion and diversity work together by recognising that we are included in a greater good than us, a greater good who's designed our diversity. 
So what do we, the people of Renew, do with all this? What can you do with this? It's been a bit academic, right? You know, one of my greatest struggles with evangelism is, weirdly enough, shame. Uh, I don't know. Okay, there we go. Sorry, you missed the last verse. But when I was in high school, I don't know if anyone recognises this. Does anyone recognise what that is? <laughs> Mel, you don't recognise that? <laughs> yeah, and do you know what that thing is? It's a tract pocket. It's a little vinyl sleeve to hold your tracts in. And I got one of these when I, was, when I was a teenager. And I put that thing in my school uniform short shirt pocket and I walked around with it every day. I hoped that people would ask me for a tract. Like, I don't know, like, have you got one of those four ways to, you know, the four spiritual laws? Um, nobody ever did. Nobody ever asked me for the four spiritual laws. I don't know why. I don't know what they were thinking, like they were missing out. I hoped, uh, despite praying regularly, I, I found few opportunities that fit any of the tracks I had. I had, I had some really horrible ones, actually, the ones, you know, those cartoon ones that were really gloomy and, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like all about people dying and going to hell and stuff like that. I never found any opportunities for those tracks. Just never fit into high school life. And I still feel the remnants of the shame that I felt in not handing out all those tracks in that wallet to my classmates. Such a weird thing, but it's true. But that shame, that shame has no place in evangelism. In reality, even without handing out all those tracks from my little track pocket, which was quite sweaty in Charles Towers, so... It was a real, you know, it was like I was carrying my cross in my front pocket. Um, in reality, I actually, I encourage my Christian friends, maybe not by carrying a track thing around, but just by being the sort of person who, who was a Christian and who was steadfastly a Christian in the face of all of the mockery. And I, I helped to keep them strong and they kept me strong. I challenged my classmates to recognise the reality of Christ, which annoyed them constantly. And I did this simply by inviting people. I invited them to ICF. I invited them to youth group. I invited them to camps. Magnetic Island, good place to have camps. I invited them to church. I invited them to talk and debate with me, to prove me wrong. Inviting people who constantly say no, which they did, does hurt. And I didn't invite people as much as I could have, I confess. But, but back then, inclusion wasn't actually a value of our society. So my inclusion, which was driven by my faith, actually just looked really weird. I just looked weird. I was a weird kid. Today... Today we can be inclusive without looking weird. Everyone's inclusive. We just, you know, we're just being like everyone else. So don't be afraid to invite people to stuff. 
invite them to, to our Christmas events. Invite them to watch The Chosen with us when the next episodes come out, which I think Mabel was saying is probably next year. Right? Oh, December. That's... Ah, oh, so, so they're releasing one and two in December 11 and then weekly after that. So around Christmas time. So invite them to watch The Chosen with you. Invite them to our Australia Day barbecue next year. Invite them here. Invite them to talk with you. You don't have to invite them to prove you wrong if you don't like debating. But if you do, that's a good thing. Neither should we be ashamed of the gospel's demand for repentance. The trajectory of our society increasingly shows how important transformation is. In fact, society itself offers many attempts to solve people's problems, from the crystals of Byron to the gyms therapists and plastic surgeons of the Gold Coast. We watched a movie last night on Amazon called The People We Hate at the Wedding. Strange title. But its theme was how everyone needs to repent from their sins for their lives to function well. Everyone. The difference between us and the world is that our way, our transformation, actually works. There's no need for false humility. So we don't need a tract wallet to evangelise. We just need to love our neighbours, to include them by inviting them to join us and to share with them the not-so-secret secret to a wholesome and abundant life, obedience to our loving Lord Jesus. And, of course, we can do this anywhere, anytime, with anyone. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, you told us to go out into all the world and to make disciples. Help us to do that. Give us your love that's so, so inclusive. Help us to see the value of diversity through your eyes and help us to communicate how gentle your yoke is and how light your burden is compared to the burdens that our friends and neighbours carry without you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.